Hello, humans. Hello, hello, humans. Humans of Minnesota, humans of the Twin Cities, humans of the world. Hello, how are you? Welcome to the 101st episode of LE 2.0 Radio. I hope you were listening last week when we did our wonderful live show. Um, and maybe you even called in. It would be wonderful if you had done that. Um, we, so, and here we are. We're starting, we're starting the counter all over again, show number 101, and it is a good show. It is. I'm, <clears throat> the idealist that I'm going to highlight uh, today, our historical idealist, you will love. And we have a big interview, the big interview, with a woman named Sarah Drake from a, a nonprofit, an incredible nonprofit uh, named Her Arts in Action, doing work in Western Africa. Yes. And she lives in St. Cloud, may I note. Um, but... And then, of course, you're going to get my C block about my work um, as a hopeless idealist. Remember, the show is about idealism and idealists. It is about trying to make our world a better place. And I think we can all agree that right now, with where we're at, particularly with America, we sure need a whole lot more idealism than we've been getting. Okay, but first, I want to talk about an icon of children's public television. The man truly responsible for making children's programming a real thing. And of course, I'm referring to Fred Rogers, the Mr. Rogers of the PBS series, Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, uh, a series that ran for 33 years from 1968 to 2001. I'm talking about Fred Rogers because I had the chance to see the new movie, A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood, starring Tom Hanks, as Mr. Rogers. And did you know, by the way, that Tom Hanks is actually a sixth cousin of Fred Rogers? Had no idea about that. I bet Tom Hanks, um, uh, I, I, that's a weird coincidence that he would then end up start uh, playing Mr. Rogers. I got to see the movie. I've got to tell you, please go see that movie. Please go see it. I didn't know what to expect about the movie um, at all. Um, I really hadn't even read any of the reviews. I had no idea what the movie was about. Go see it. Make sure you bring a tissue. Um, and frankly, other than knowing of Fred Rogers and his PBS show, I really didn't know very much about Fred Rogers. However, from both the movie and from what I've learned in researching him, I am here to announce that Fred Rogers was as idealistic as they come. Except for a few years while living in Canada and the time that he spent in college, Fred Rogers lived his entire life in the area of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. He was born in Latrobe, Pennsylvania, about 40 miles from Pittsburgh, and he grew up in a wealthy family. His father was the president of a brick-making company, um, and um, his mother uh, came from a family um, of entrepreneurs. But early on, Fred Rogers also learned about what it meant to be other because, and I, you know, had no idea about this, but as a, as a kid, he was incredibly overweight. And as a result, he was bullied about his weight and even called Fat Freddy. This led Fred to having a very lonely childhood and had him using his imagination to create a world of his own with stuffed animals and a, a ventriloquist dummy in his bedroom in his home in Latrobe. Fred Rogers was also shy and introverted, but um, with a lot of effort, he overcame 
that um, to become the student council president of his high school. He later graduated from Rollins College, um, uh, magna cum laude, in, um, and Rollins College is in Winter Park, Florida. He had a degree there, um, from there, in music composition. Later, he went to the Pittsburgh Theological Seminary and became an ordained minister in the United Presbyterian Church. I did not know that. But from uh, the, the movie, uh, as well as from some of the shows that I watched as I did my research, it's really clear that Fred Rogers was ministering to the children that he spoke with. And frankly, even as I say that, it kind of brings up some emotion for me that somebody would be so bold, so bold, as to want to talk to children in a way um, that made them feel that they were worthy. Uh, eventually, Fred Rogers ended up at WQED um, in Pittsburgh. That was the regional public television station in Pennsylvania. Uh, Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood first aired in 1968 and would eventually run for 895 episodes. Brett, you and I just got—this is episode 101. I mean, I don't know if we'll ever make 895. What do you think, pal? <laughs> we got a ways to go. We do have a ways to go. So 895 episodes of Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. Um, and um, uh, it's, that's an amazing feat. <clears throat> Ultimately— um, Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood uh, show would air on 384 PBS stations to nearly 2 million homes every time the show aired. That's a, quite an accomplishment. Now, what made Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood unique was its focus on, on the social and emotional needs of children, like dealing with tough topics such as the death of a family pet or sibling rivalry or divorce. Um, as I was researching this, though, what became of special, special interest to me was that soon after the show began to air in 1968, uh, Mr. Rogers did a special show um, right after the death of my hero, uh, Robert F. Kennedy, right after the assassination of Bobby. Um, and Fred Rogers did a special about that because he wanted to talk directly um, first of all, he used his puppets to use, insert the word assassination um, using a balloon and um, one of his uh, colleagues um, to talk about how um, uh, the air in a balloon goes out, but it's all around us. Um, it was a, actually a very brilliant metaphor. And then um, in that special, um, he turns from the children to talk to the parents. And... He talked with them about his concern about the degree of violent images that children are being exposed to. And he called on the parents um, to understand the needs for their children to be part of the family as, um, as the family dealt with um, the death of Bobby Kennedy. And, 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 and he, he offered tips on how um, to bring children in about, you know, about having the children present while you would watch the funeral on television. Or maybe the family instead needed to take a walk by the pond as their way of, of um, dealing with the death. And then he said, um, maybe all you need to do is a strong hug around your child. So... Um, 
this was, all of this work about uh, children's emotional and social needs was um, about teaching them civility and tolerance and self-worth. I mean, this is incredible stuff that was going on in 1968, let alone in, um, in the 90s and early 2000s. Now, you contrast uh, Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood with Sesame Street, which was really about early education. So Sesame Street was teaching you about, about colors, and it was teaching you about counting and things like that. Um, Fred Rogers retired from producing his show in 2001 at the age of 73. Uh, two years later, he died of s- stomach cancer. Now, I, call, I started this out by <clears throat> calling Fred Rogers an idealist, and I really meant that. He had an optimistic view of the world and believed in the power of influencing young humans to be the best versions of themselves. Best versions of themselves. You stay tuned when I talk in the C block about how uh, young humans can get such a mixed message about that. He worked tirelessly to empower and give voices to those who are most innocent and impressionable. And he did it through compassion and kindness and a willingness to speak up and use his imagination. Most of all, what Mr. Rogers was is he was a human who believed in the power and the goodness of other humans. Now, this comes clear if you go and see his movie. Now, part of the movie, the movie at the beginning, you'll see uh, the movie says inspired by true events. And the character um, of the movie, the, uh, the protagonist in the movie is a journalist who was jaded in life, um, who... Uh, worked for Esquire magazine. Now, that was real. There was a mag- an, an Esquire magazine journalist who was assigned to go do a fluff piece on Mr. Rogers, and it turned out to be a 10,000-word uh, uh, feature on Mr. Rogers as a hero. But that journalist, there are some things built into the story that are just fictional. But everything that Mr. Rogers says in the movie with Tom Hanks playing Mr. Rogers. Everything that Mr. Rogers does in the movie actually happened. There were actually things that Fred Rogers said and did. So when you watch the movie, understand that there's a scene in the movie where Mr. Rogers um, is on a New York subway and people recognize him and they start singing, you know, um, you know a beautiful day song, Won't You Be My Friend, um, song. And so that actually happened and, uh, and other things did. So I didn't expect Mr. Rogers to be an idealist. I didn't. But as soon as I started watching the movie, I knew that I needed to feature him. And now you know more about, uh, many of you, I assume, know more about him than what you did. I certainly did. And he's certainly somebody I want to emulate in many ways. So there you go. You have me, Ellie Krug, talking about Mr. Rogers. Um, I hope that you like what you hear. If you like, visit my website at elliekrug.com. Follow me on Twitter at Ellie Krug is the handle. Follow me on Instagram at Ellie J. Krug is the handle. Is the handle. When we come back, we'll do the big interview with Sarah Drake. Thanks. And we're back on AM 950 LE 2.0 Radio. 
I am uh, I'm absolutely thrilled for our the big interview for this uh, this week's show. I have uh, Sarah Drake from Her Arts in Action, a nonprofit doing incredible work in West Africa, on the line. Sarah, are you there? I'm here. Thanks for having me. Oh, Sarah, I'm just thrilled to have you here. Ever since I found out about your nonprofit and your also an NGO um, in Africa. Uh, named uh, Her Arts in Action. I have really wanted to talk with you. And um, it's not a nonprofit that I uh, knew anything about. Um, you are, uh, you are first of all, an artist. Do I have that right? Yes, that's my career, yep. Okay, that's your career. And, and you have founded Her Arts in Action to um, do work in um, uh, Burkina Faso, uh, and uh, a country that is in West Africa, it's a landlocked country for those who aren't familiar, about 22 million people, according to my Wikipedia little research. Sarah, will you tell us what is Her Arts in Action and how did that come about? So Her Arts in Action came about after my first trip to Burkina Faso in 2011. And I... The name of it and the title came from working with college students. I love working with students and giving them experience. And I went to my alma mater and said, I need a name and a logo because I have this crazy idea to start a nonprofit halfway around the world. Hold on, hold on a second. What what got you to a Burkina Faso to begin with? Why did you go there among, you know, versus going to Ivory Coast or going to South Africa or anywhere else? You know, and I tried going to the continent several times in my life and it never worked out and then um, enter a broken heart and needing to uh, heal and express emotions and I my daughter told me that I should start painting to help get that out and I was painting mud huts with designs on them and these big ugly trees that I had never seen before and so I did a little bit of research and found a village in Burkina Faso um that obviously looked better than what my paintings were, but um, just felt this deep connection that that was the place and um, ended up that things fell into place that I could travel and go there and um, go to that artistic village. And when I was there meeting the people and um, seeing the conditions that they lived in, you know, they didn't have electricity and they didn't have water and sanitation and, and all of these things that we take for granted here. And I was like, oh, they need these things. But I knew that as a white person visiting this place, I couldn't impose what I thought they needed. And so I told them, you know what, I have an apartment full of art right now. I've never tried to sell my work, hmm. but I'm like, I could try and sell it as a fundraiser. And, you know, these are the different skills that I have. These are the resources I have access to. If you want, we could work on a project together. And they wanted access to education and employment. And I said, well, with my experience working at the workforce center, 
I was like, well, do you have transportation? Are you healthy? Do you have childcare? Like all the things that are needed to either be able to get to or retain employment or education. They said no. Okay. So let me just stop you. So the audience has a, a, an idea. You're, you're coming to the art, the art uh, profession uh, calling a little late in, in, in life. Were you working for the government, uh, the state, um, before you started doing this? Um, I was. And I was an artist growing up and wanted okay. to do that. But, you know, <clears throat> it wasn't encouraged and supported as a realistic career choice. And so I had set art aside for many years. And then, um, yeah, I was an employee of, uh, contracted by the county. Um, for the work that I was doing when this happened. Okay, doing workforce development. So apparently yes. you took a vacation from work and that's what... I did. Had you, okay, that had you over in, in Africa, which makes the story even more incredible. And so you, you, you meet with the uh, village elders and uh, their culture leaders and, and you learn, all right, they need help um, around uh, employment, around education. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you, what, what happens then? You come back to the U S. Um, before that I got really sick. Oh my <laughs> goodness. Ended up in the hospital. Oh my goodness. And thankfully that year was a government shutdown. So when I wasn't able to come home on time, I didn't lose my job because I was out of vacation time. Um, it timed perfectly with how long the government was shut down at the time. So I was laid off. Okay. Um, but getting sick, um, and that's really what helped solidify it for me, was survivor guilt. Because the the gastrointestinal infection I had, um, at that time, the statistics were 25,000 children under the age of five died each year from the very illness that I had. Oh, boy. because I was an American, they took me to the very best healthcare facility, and I received two days of the best care that was available, and I was okay. And so um, that coupled with just the amazing people that I had met is what really um, propelled me. Um, like I said, I had never tried to sell my work or anything. And when I came back and it was time to enter that first art show, I was like, nope, you can't see it, but I'm a redhead, pale skin, you know, stereotypical, shy, you look at me, I'm going to turn red. And was like, nope, I cannot put myself out there like that. For, you mean for, for the art show? To put the art, <clears throat> to go to the art show. And this little voice in my head was like, wow, you are really selfish. <laughs> like, there are literal children dying right now, and you're too scared to go do this. Oh, my gosh. I love um, that. I love that story. That is a phenomenal, that's a fantastic and, and story. And that's what propelled me into doing what I was doing. Well, you know what that little voice was. I'm just sorry to report to you. That was <laughs> that was your idealistic self yelling at yeah. you. Yeah. <laughs> it was. Yeah. And so, um, and, and uh, we're going to have to take a break here in a second, but you come back to St. Cloud after your experience in Bikima mm-hmm. Fossa, and then you, um, you, you really endeavored to create this nonprofit, right? 
I mean, you're building it that off the ground. That wasn't my intention, but um, <clears throat> because of the lack of resources, none of the existing NGOs were willing to work in that part of the country. Okay, now, Sarah, so, I'm going to have to take yeah. a break because we, um, we're going to run out of time. But when we come back, I wanna, we absolutely want to hear the rest of this story, okay? Thank you. All right, you're welcome. So I've been uh, speaking with uh, Sarah Drake, the founder of Her Arts in Action, um, a, um, an art-related uh, nonprofit doing incredible work in uh, Burkina Faso. Um, when we come back, we'll speak further with Sarah. Uh, in the meantime, of course, if you like this show, email me at lejkrug at gmail.com. We'll be back in a second. Thanks. On AM 950 LE 2.0 Radio, um, we've been speaking with Sarah Drake, who is the founder and executive director of Her Arts in Action, a nonprofit doing incredible work in Burkina Faso in West Africa. So, Sarah, before we took our, our break, you had talked about coming back from Africa after your experience of being extremely sick. Um, in that country, and realizing uh, the needs uh, for one of the villages uh, that you visited, and you come back and you you decide you're you're going to sell this art that you've been uh, accumulating in your in your living space uh, as a way to try and raise money, uh, and then uh, you had to talk yourself into um, actually. Uh, going out there and, and, and selling because you're, uh, it sounds like, um, like me in many ways, you're an introvert. And, um, and then you did that. And what, what happened with your first fundraiser? How did it go? And, and how was all of this received in St. Cloud? We need to know. <laughs> um, not well. <laughs> oh, it was hard for people to understand, like, why should they care about people? that don't look like them, that aren't from their community. And um, it took a long time to get people's attention, get them to notice. Um, and I want to say it was about a year and a half before I started getting recognition outside of Minnesota. And it was actually one of, I was part of the group of first Americans allowed to exhibit in a museum in Moscow. And so making history, uh, I created a, uh, an art exhibition that was in honor of that since I couldn't be there. And because that was pretty and nice and, um, you know, Minnesota white comfort kind of thing, people were like, Oh, we want, we want to show your art. And I instantly said, no, and then I was like, oh, my gosh, what did I just do? <laughs> like, this was my first opportunity. And I was like, no, you want this feel-good stuff. You don't want my artwork that's about human rights and, and discrimination and access to water in Burkina Faso. You want the feel-good art. And I'm not about that. Wow. So like, either, you either want my art that... <clears throat> It's about what I'm trying to do, or you don't get my art. Wow. I was terrified. I'm like, oh my gosh, what did I just say? You go, Sarah. I mean, I'm just loving, uh, I'm loving the bravery and, you know, drawing a line in the sand. So go ahead. And, and, but I think that's part of it. Just like the, the first art, um, 
entering the first art show, it wasn't about me. If it was about me, I would have been like, "Uh uh-uh. But, like, knowing that literal lives could be saved by me doing it, it was bigger than me. It wasn't about me. And so that is where my bravery came from. And people that know me now, they don't believe that I used to be an introvert. They don't believe, like, that used to be. There's no way that could have been you, Sarah. Like, because that's just not who I am. The, the strength that I got from the women and the girls um, being able to um, help contribute to them having a better quality of life was what it was about. It wasn't about me. Okay. And, you, and you, you've been able to attract um, uh, Hollywood types uh, for your yeah. art. Do I have that right? Yeah. I, I had never given Twitter a chance. And then about four years ago, I was at a conference and they asked for people's Twitter handles because they could publish that, not emails. And I was watching a show that Christopher Palaha was in and in it, they mentioned something about contaminated water. And so on a whim, I, I messaged tweeted him and was like, Hey, I'm watching your show. You mentioned water. I have a water project. We should chat because nothing's going to happen. Right. (laughs) But he responded. And, um, that first year he had autographed, uh, a script and a poster and, and we auctioned him online and got a little bit of money and, you know, kind of stayed in contact a little bit. And then the next year, he called and was like, I want to do something more than signing a script. And he's like, I want to do a painting. And I was like, you paint? And he said, no. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm, I'm like, I'm really confused right now, but I'm trying not to freak out because I'm talking to somebody in Hollywood, you know? And he's like, you use art to educate people about your project. And he's like, so I want to do a painting to engage my fans and I was like wow and then the next thing I know he's going around to some of his other actor friends and we had eight of them that did paintings and we raised over eleven thousand dollars doing an online auction and it was that that made it possible it took five years but it was doing that fundraiser that made it possible to make my first trip back to Burkina Faso. And that's when um, things here in St. Cloud started to get more recognition and traction and, and things like that. Okay. And then what, so what have you done in Burkina Faso now with the money that you have raised? And you had told me offline, you've raised a little less than 50,000 altogether. I I think so off the top of my head. Um, now, I just came back two weeks ago from a trip. So I've had seven trips there now in okay. the last years. And um, it took a long time to get things in place right. <laughs> um, to where we could actually start doing things. But the beginning of 2018 is when we could do our first projects. And so in a year and a half, we have built one water well and fixed one. And so that gives, you know, 1,500 to 2,000 people access to clean water that didn't have access before. And that's a guess. Um, We've built eight latrines 
and fixed six. And so again, that's two to 4,000 people that are served because two of them are at the schools. Okay. And, um, you know, part of this, you know, they had wanted education and when, we started with the hierarchy of needs. It was like, well, if we don't have access to clean water and you're spending and, you know, the global average is four hours a day hauling 40 pounds of water. So you're not in school or at work. Um, that's why we started there. And I was like, so even, you know, once we have the clean water and we have some latrines, so, and we can get some scholarships for girls to go to school, you know, are there, additional barriers and it was like yep so some of the schools don't have toilets and so if you don't have a toilet girls that are menstruating miss school or even if you have the toilets if you don't have access to sanitary pads they can't go and so looking at you know also what were the other things and so when we then started the scholarships for the girls to go to school that included sanitary pads it included mosquito nets to help prevent malaria um, solar lanterns so they could do their homework after they did their daily chores and, you know, things like that so that we could have them full equipped the best we could for success. It okay. wasn't just, okay, go to school and <laughs> now good luck. <laughs> so, and, and you have a couple of people in, in, in country that are helping you as well. Um, yes. and, but what, uh, what I want to, uh, we've got about th- uh, three and a half minutes left. And what I'd really like to do is talk about you. And so okay. are, do you still have a day job? I mean, are you still working, um, for the government? No, I, um, I was laid off about six years ago and that's when I was like, okay, I've been teetering this, you know, work nonprofit artist kind of thing. And so now we're going to try and give the nonprofit artist thing a whirl. And, um, I still, all of the nonprofit stuff has been totally volunteer. I've not been paid to do any of it. Um, but making my art and doing teaching residencies is okay. how I make okay. my living. Yep. All right. So, so what made you an idealist? That's what I want to know. I mean, it's not a given, okay, that somebody, yeah. first of all, would have this inkling that they <clears throat> need to go to an African village a West African village to do art. And then secondly, it's not a given whatsoever that even with seeing uh, the degree of poverty, um, and that's a, that is a Western world uh, word, mm-hmm. um, that, that it would trigger someone into saying, well, I'm going to go to all the trouble of building a nonprofit. I mean, I've been an executive director of a nonprofit. <laughs> it's not easy work. So how did you get here? I mean, what was it about you growing up? Was there somebody in your, in your background, some role model that you had, somebody that, what made you an idealist? You know, I, I still don't know. And I've thought about that even before you asked the question. Um, and it's just something that's always been in me. I was always the kid that you know, took change from the couch and sent it to whatever thing came up on the TV, which now I know is problematic, but um, at the time I didn't. And um, I just have always had uh, a compassionate heart. And if there's something that I can do to to help somebody, um, I do it. And, and I really think, you know, when I mentioned that it's, it wasn't about me, I think that's really it that that 
compassion that's just always been in me, um, whether it was for people, stray animals, whatever it might be, um, that's just always been there. Everything I can think going back through childhood that's just always been there as a part of, of who I am. So, and then add, add knowing that, you know, thousands of children were dying, that guilt of, again, knowing that I had access to something just because I was an American. And I, I literally drove by people standing out in the 100 plus degree heat, standing outside waiting to be seen at this rundown clinic as they were driving me to the hospital to get better care. And so all of those things combined is what... Mm has has driven me well it's amazing what happens when we keep our eyes open isn't it um so sarah uh, we've got just a little bit time left uh if if people want to know more about your organization her arts in action Mm -hmm. how can they find out more and if they want to donate and listeners you know um uh it's uh it's the holiday season how can they do that so www.herartsinaction.org and her arts in action across all social media channels and donations can be in the form of check on the website there's square paypal give mn all kinds of different ways it can be that you invite me in person to come do a talk and people can make donations um buy art invite me to do a residency Anything, and this is part of an ideal thing, um, any art that I make that is inspired by Burkina Faso, their artwork, anything related to Burkina Faso, I donate um, at least 25% of the sales because I'm being inspired by them. That's not mine and I need to give back. Okay. So purchasing artwork is also another way. Okay, well, Sarah, we've run out of time, but I want to just tell you, I I really admire you, and I think that what you're doing is incredible, and and what you're proving is that even just one person, one person can make a difference in the lives of thousands, and I just uh, want you to know I respect the heck out of you. I wish you the the very best, and and when we get off uh, off the air here, I'm going to offer you a couple of ideas about how you can uh, promote yourself and, and your nonprofit. So, so, well, so Sarah Drake, thank you so very much for being on LE 2.0 Radio. Um, thank you. Listeners, we've been speaking with Sarah Drake, the founder of Her Arts in Action. <clears throat> Excuse me. And um, uh, again, uh, you've got the website and go check it out. When we come back from the break, we'll do my C block where I talk about my work. Um, thanks so very much. We'll be back in a second. We're back on LE 2.0 Radio and AM 950. All right. Um, so Sarah Drake, um, idealist, um, please go check out her um, her nonprofit, Her Arts in Action. And please consider uh, making a donation or at least 
at least spread word about her nonprofit within your community and let other people know. And if you can give her an opportunity to come and speak to your organization, whether you're in a Rotary or the Lions or, or your book club or whatever, please um, consider um, doing that. And I need to do a shout out to one of my regular listeners and friends, Linda Gale, who was the person who gave me Sarah's uh, name and told me about her nonprofit. And listeners, if you hear of other idealists that you know about, please let me know. Email me at lejkrug at gmail.com with, with leads because, uh, I, you know, this is uh, hard work for me to find uh, uh, guests, as, as you know sometimes, because you get my my talking head segments. And so I appreciate all leads that I can get. I can't guarantee you, um, but I'm certainly appreciative of Linda Gale because she led us to uh, Sarah Drake, which was quite, she has quite a story, you know, and she does. And she's an idealist and, um, you know, she's close to the wire as it relates to um, um, making a living. And sometimes it's what idealists do. They sacrifice because they believe in the need to help other people. All right, so we're in my C block. I'm trying to talk about my work. As most of you know, I speak and train on human inclusivity across North America. This year, at the beginning of 2019, we're almost over, um, at the beginning of the year, I announced a special focus on doing more work in greater the greater Midwest and particularly greater Minnesota, where there are so many people LGBTQ identifying, people of color other than the white color, persons of faith other than Christians, um, persons with visible disabilities, so many people who are out there hurting or afraid because of their otherness and because of the risk of being judged in some way, shunned by a community. Now, um, you heard in the beginning block um, where I talked about Fred Rogers and his special emphasis on children and making them feel worthy as well as helping them create the best possible versions of themselves, affirming that. Well, three weeks ago, um, as part of my greater Minnesota push, um, I was in Red Wing, Minnesota, a town of about 22,000 people. I was there to do my gray area thinking human inclusivity training. The city human rights uh, commission brought me in to do uh, two uh, gray area thinking trainings, two two hour trainings. Um, uh, one of those was uh, over the lunch hour to 125 people. I mean, the room was absolutely packed. Um, and then in the evening we had about 50 or 60 so people. The training was incredibly well received. I am receiving to this day emails from people in Red Wing telling me how much they appreciated me being there. And in turn, I'm going to put a shout out to the Human Rights Commission um, in Red Wing, particularly to a woman named Beth, who was adamant about bringing me to Red Wing. So I, I'm going to, my hat's off to the HRC in Red Wing for its courage in bringing me in. My day in Red Wing, though, began with me speaking to 70 or so high school students at the high school. And I have a talk when I speak with students about how to get past othering and how to get past group identities because we have group identities that make people part of the group and then people who are not part of the group and then those who aren't part of the group are in some way shamed or judged or made to feel other. And I have a talk about how to get past that. At some point in my talk, 
um, I told all of the students that they mattered, that they were worthy as humans, that they were worthy as real people. As I said that, uh, two of the students in the front row, so I was in the auditorium, so we've got students in, you know, theater seating. Um, in the front row, there were probably about eight or nine students. Um, two of the students in the front row, um, um, which I later learned were the LGBTQ students um, in, the, in the auditorium at the time, two of those students began to cry. Um, I saw a teacher bring tissues um, to the students, and I saw her put her arm around one of the crying students. And I continued to speak, <clears throat> and, um, and when I got done uh, with my talk, uh, the LGBTQ students asked if they could talk with me outside the auditorium, just us alone, without teachers or any other adult around. I said, of course. And that group that wanted to talk with me included the two who had cried. And um, in the course of speaking with them, I, I asked, what did I say to make them cry? And the response back was that I was the first person to ever tell them that they mattered, that they were worthy. First person. These were teenagers, 16, 17 years old. Hearing that broke my heart. Can you imagine growing up, struggling with who you are, and no one taking the time or understanding the need to tell that person that you are worthy, that I love you, that you have value, that you matter to me, and that you're okay just as who you are? So now we're back to Mr. Rogers, of course, because that's exactly what he did. Ellie Krug, sort of like Mr. Rogers. Um, don't go too far with that, okay? <laughs> um, and hearing that from the students reminded me of how alone so many of our young people feel. And it reinforced for me the reason why I need to get out of the comfort zone of the LGBTQ-friendly Twin Cities and do the hard work of showing up in places where there are no visible Ellie Krugs and where I can go and talk about having compassion for others and for selves. I do that because I'm an idealist. Okay, um, you've been listening to me, Ellie Krug. I need to be a shout out to um, our sponsors, Brent, Brending Electrolysis over in St. Paul. Tell Bev I sent you because she does great work and to Better Futures Minnesota. A big thanks to my producer, Brett Johnson. Brett, happy holidays to you, my pal. You are the best. And to you, my listeners, happy holidays to you. The next two shows after this will be best of Ellie's because um, those are low listener days generally. Um, but I hope that you have great holidays. I will be back to you after the first of the year, and we will be giving you a great new year of Ellie 2.0 Radio. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.